The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 15th chapter. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices." And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. So, over the course of the week, I've been wrestling with about three ways to begin this sermon. I may use all three of them before it's all said and done. Who knows? But the, the first one... It, it strikes me, you know, and, it, and it's been on my mind all week that this is the 15th anniversary of 9-11. And, uh, you know, I remember my parents talking about Pearl Harbor and, you know, mom and dad talking about the Vietnam War and different events in their life where they could remember where they were and what they were doing. And uh, I was in my, my first senior year at USC. I, I was an overachiever, so I needed two of them. And I was walking into the, into the GIMP, which is the dining hall at USC, and a friend of mine, Danny Donnie Clark, was walking out, and he said, holy cow, somebody just ran a plane into the World Trade Center. And I said, somebody is going to be in trouble. Because my first thought was that it was an air traffic controller who had really messed up, or a radar that had malfunctioned, or something crazy. And so I walked in, and everyone was gathered around televisions looking at the, the first World Trade Center b- building burning. And then all of a sudden, and, and I don't remember specifically whether this is something that I really remember or whether I saw it in footage later, but I, I remember seeing the, the second plane hit the World Trade Center and a silence fall over the, the GIMP people who were standing around watching TV and seeing this happen as we all realized that this is no accident. You know, when is the last time in any room that you had about 200 people in there and you had total silence, not even a breath? You know, we we collectively were breathless and speechless. And uh, at that point, I remember I I just kind of went home, which now, now granted, it did not take a lot of encouragement for me to skip class. But that day I did go home to be to be with my bride who uh, who was sleeping because she worked nights. And and I just remember spending that day in fear because we had no clue what to do about it, no clue what was really going on, didn't have any idea what the real scope was or what the, what the fallout was going to be. But I remember, you know, my first reaction and emotion being, being shock and my second emotion being fear and my third emotion being anger. And it wasn't too long either before the end of that day or the next day where the words came out of my mouth, I don't know who did this, but wherever it is, we need to make a new lake. You know, and anyone else resonate with that feeling where, where something just makes you so angry? Or you, were, you were at 9-11 and you realized that it was, 
it was terrorism. And you just wanted to do something, get revenge, something to make things right, something to even the score. And, and I, I just absolutely remember when, when we first decided we were going to Afghanistan, you know, I was still at the point in my anger about it that I was gung-ho, I was, I was cheering for it. And, uh, you know, we, we feel these things and we, we think about this reaction and we, we know obviously this is the right thing to do because this is what we do as Americans, right? We see, we see injustice and we see people being, being evil and we see things going on in the world that need to be fixed. And so what do we do? We send our military. This is our habit. This is our tradition. This is our real American pastime. It's not baseball, it's war. Because we've been at war almost our entire existence as a nation. And so this is the response we were all expecting, and by God, we got it. Now, after the anger, after the fear, after all of it subsided, and I came to the realization with a lot of other people in America once we were in Iraq that... Uh, Maybe we hadn't gone in for the reason that we thought we went in. And, and maybe we weren't bringing the freedom to everybody that we thought we were bringing them. And maybe, just maybe, we're not going to bomb people into loving us. You know, it's amazing that it took me almost three years to realize that one, right? You know, I, my fear and my anger and my shock turned into grief. Because I, I realized that... Uh, you know, whatever it was we were doing over there wasn't working. And I realized, not for the first time, but maybe for the first time in my heart as an adult, that uh, there is no amount of military might that is going to make this world peaceful. And uh, it turned my heart. And, you know, remember this time, for those of you all who are old enough to remember it, and it's a, it's a time similar to what I remember World War II people saying. You know, World War II people, especially the people who fought in the war and the people who saw the real action because they were the people who really didn't want to talk about it. But when you really got someone who was a World War II vet or a Vietnam vet or a Korean War vet or any war vet talking about it, you know, there, there's, this, there's this sense that what, what they were doing wasn't necessarily what they wanted to be doing, but what they were doing was something that they deemed to be necessary, right? And, and there's this sense among the population that unless you, if you don't support the war, then you don't support the soldiers. And certainly, for those of you all who remember Vietnam, wasn't that the case? The tide turned against the war, and all of a sudden the tide turned against the soldiers too. And that was maybe one of the largest tragedies in American history was that the tide turned against the people. The war wasn't their fault, but they were the one on whose shoulders it really rested because the weight of the war isn't borne by the politicians who declared, it's borne by the people on the ground. And uh, one of the things that I noticed we did differently this time is we, we were able as a, as a nation, for the most part, to make a different statement. We can be against the war and we can be for the soldiers, right? We can support our troops and recognize that we're not always right. This is a change of heart. This is a change of direction. This is a real, a real difference in, in our culture that I don't think has ever existed before because maybe as a culture we realized something different when all of a sudden things came home to roost and 
I heard a phrase that, uh, that, I, that I don't think I had heard before, maybe a couple weeks after 9-11, where someone said, you know, on 9-11, the world changed forever. Now, certainly, my world changed. But 9-11 wasn't day, the day the world changed. 9-11 was the day that the United States joined the rest of the world in experiencing the fear of terrorism. 9-11 is the day that the United States joined the rest of the world and recognizing that we couldn't stand back and do nothing. 9-11 was the day that we joined the rest of the world and joined in their collective shock and fear and anger and the sense that we don't know what to do, but we need to do something, so let's send our military. And uh, we see how that works. We see what that's bought us. You know, it's bought us... 15 years of war, that still doesn't seem to have an end, even though people promised us this will be over quickly. Have no fear. We have smart bombs now, and uh, we're going to be finished soon. You know, the, the reason that this is important, because I don't, I don't necessarily want to stand up and say, hmm, it's 9-11, it's the 15th anniversary, I can really milk this emotionally. The, the reason I bring this up is because this stands in stark contrast to what happens today in the Exodus passage. God had delivered God's people from Egypt. They were in bondage, they were in slavery, they were suffering. And God heard their cries, and God sent Moses to declare to Pharaoh that his people were going to be let go, and God led them out, th out from Egypt through a parted sea into the desert, and led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This was all the things that, that Michael Bay wishes he could really portray in his movies except in real life. And there they were at the base of the mountain and Moses had gone up to commune with God and he was gone just a little while and God's people started to get anxious because they had looked to Moses. They knew that God was the one whose power was behind Moses, but don't we have a tendency to look at central figures, to look at leaders and, and idolize them? You know, some, I think one of the reasons we argue so much about who should be president isn't because the president can actually do all the things they promise, but it's because we need someone to place our hopes on, someone to blame. You know, we need someone who represents our culture and our, and our values and, and the face of this nation and the rule of our law, right? And so they saw Moses, and this was the face for them. Moses was the one upon whom they placed their hope because he was the one who held the staff and drove it down into the ground and caused the waters to part through the power of God. And now he was gone, and they weren't sure what to do. But they knew that they had been working mighty hard for a long time, and they were sure tired, and the desert was sure hot, and they really wanted something to take their minds off of it. So what did they do? They partied. Makes sense. And, and they realized, you know, we need a reason to party. We need something to represent God. But, you know, God's not here right now. So what should we do but melt down our jewelry and build this altar to a fertility God? Because no one can party like a fertility God. And so there they were at the base of the mountain partying. And God looks down. And think about what God says in this passage. Moses, you led your people out of Egypt. You know, you brought them here. And... And now I'm going to take care of this. And he was getting ready to smite and to do all those things that we're really afraid that God is waiting to do, right? Because if, if we're really honest, one of the reasons that we have faith is because we're afraid of what happens if we don't, right? 
there, it's, that, it's that old question that maybe wasn't first uttered in the 60s, but certainly came from Cr- Campus Crusade for Christ. If you were to die tonight, do you know where you're going to go, right? That old question, that old fear-based question. And Moses reminded God, don't, don't forget Abraham. Don't forget Isaac and the promises you made to them. You let us out. And, and you brought us our freedom. And you made this promise. Remember the promise that you made. And God did something that I think is so singularly important that maybe we should be proclaiming this every Sunday we, we have worship as well. It said God changed his mind in the text. It's the, it's the word for repent. God repents of the intention to destroy the people and turns aside from the thing that God was going to do and turns instead toward the mercy that Moses reminded him of that really resides in the heart of God. Now this tells us a couple things about God that I think is really important. One thing it tells us about God is something that's true in all relationships. It's true of us and it's true of God as well that you cannot be in a relationship without being vulnerable. Because when someone you love hurts you, it hurts. And when someone you love cuts you to the quick and cuts you to the heart, it hurts so bad. And we see that in vulnerability, it causes even God to stir with anger and rage and frustration and jealousy and all those things that we struggle with in our relationships too. So the first thing we learn is that our emotions, we come by them honestly. But there's a second thing that we learn in this. You know, God doesn't repay their disobedience then with violence. When God is reminded of that love, when God is reminded of that relationship, and more importantly, when God is reminded of the covenant that he cut with Abraham, God changes and turns away from the plan to do them harm and turns toward a plan of love. Because that's what love does too, right? Love also forgives. Now, now love remembers but love forgives. And I think that remembering becomes really important for us as we begin to think about the gospel reading today. Because that memory of God that persists throughout the scriptures, and in the Ten Commandments, you know, God, God says to them immediately following this, I am the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. God roots the entire relationship that continues with God's people for time immemorial in that singular action declaring what he had denied with Moses. I am the Lord your God. I led you out of Egypt, so have no other gods before me. God claims the people forever in stone. And as I see this, I see what God does in Jesus Because God responds to our faithlessness. God responds to our fickleness. God responds to our willingness to turn away from all the good that God has done and our complaining all the way. And and sometimes when I read this story, I think these people at the base of the mountain were proto-Lutherans because God describes them as stiff-necked, which means stubborn. You know, not in this church, but if you talk to other Lutherans and other congregations, (laughs) then, then you'll really see what I mean. But God sees the stiff-necked people who God loves, who God is in covenant with. And we see in Jesus 
a change in the way that God is communicating and covenanting with us. Because God sees our brokenness. God sees our violence. God sees our anger. God sees our hate. God sees our fickleness. And rather than responding in that way that Michael Bay would be happy with, God instead sends Jesus. And time and time again, Jesus has the opportunity to smite and smack down people, right? Jesus has plenty of opportunity to finally just throw the Pharisees down and say to them, forget it, you're out of power, I'm in power, and if you want to question me, then I'll show you what kind of power I have. And instead, Jesus tells parables about a shepherd who'd lost his sheep. And even though the shepherd has 99 sheep who are doing what they're supposed to do and staying with the flock, the shepherd leaves behind the 99 and goes off in search of that one because that one who is lost is important and valued. That one who is lost is beloved and worthwhile. That one who is lost may be the one who's causing problems. But God, like the shepherd, has a preference for the ones who are lost. God, like the shepherd, has a preference for those who have wandered off from the flock. And uh, in my own heart, that's prone to that brokenness and that's prone to that fickleness and that's prone to the fear and anger and all those things, you know, that's prone to want to do my own thing and go my own way and get my own way. You know, I, I hear this and see God go after that one and rejoice in my heart because I know that God is calling to me in my doubt, in my fear, in my shame, in my pain, in my anger, in my wrath that causes me to want to make a lake somewhere. You know, God is, is calling out to me and throws me over God's shoulders and carries me back into the fold. Not with anger, but with love. Or, you know, the woman who had lost the coin turns over her entire house, and then when she finds it, she rejoices and she calls everyone together and spends it to have a party. You know, she recognizes not only the value of what was lost, but she understands what she had and what it was for. The money that she had isn't necessarily to hoard. The money that she has is to use to, to bring joy, to bring life, to bring new, new hope, to bring new faith, to bring community. And God spends that currency on us. And in these stories, I think we begin to see what it is we're really called to be and do as the church, that it's good that we gather here. It's good that we have this community. It's good that we have this space. It's good that we have this place. But what we're called to do here, Clay said it, we're, we're, Clay's over there, Clay said this morning, I'm coming in to be fed so that I can go out into the world. I'm coming in to get what I need so I can go out there. And that's what it means to be the church. To be the church isn't to come in here once a week or twice a week, or if you're on council, maybe sometimes seven or eight times a week, who knows? You know, the the point of the church isn't to be the church here. The point of the church is to come in here to, to hear the word of God, to be fed, to be nourished, to be built up, to be encouraged so that we can go out. And we can engage in the thing that our Father is about, which is seeking out the people who are lost, seeking out the people who are afraid, seeking out the people who are in doubt, seeking out the people who are angry, seeking out the people who hate us and want to shame us, seeking out the people who feel like they don't have a place, seeking out the very people who at times in our lives we feel like in proclaiming to them that there is a place for them, there is a shepherd who loves them, 
and calling them by name and welcoming them into the family and calling them back, not necessarily into this building, even though sometimes it's nice when they follow, but welcoming them into our lives and into our hearts and into our homes and taking a chance and not just throwing a little bit of money at a problem, but build relationships with people in a way that makes us vulnerable too, because this is what God does with us, loves us in a way that makes even the creator of the universe vulnerable to the people who God loves. It's a powerful story. And I, and I think about the way God uses the power of this narrative of love in a way that ultimately began to shift my understanding of what it means to be a person who follows God and what it, what it means to be someone who lives in you know, the post-9-11 era. I, I see the night that Jesus is arrested. And, uh, you know, and, I, and I said this a little bit, for those of y'all who were at the, at the, uh, the joint worship following uh, the nightclub shootings in Orlando, you may have heard a little bit of this, but it, one, of the, one of the benefits of being the preacher is you're here for a few minutes with me. And so follow, you know, just join me on this trip. But, uh, you know, when, when Jesus was in the garden and he was arrested and Peter draws his sword and cuts off the, the ear of the slave, you know, we see the power of the sword. The power of the sword is the power to harm. The power of the sword is the power to hurt. The power of the sword is the power to, to make you feel like you really have something that's going to protect you. But who does the sword end up hurting? Not the Pharisees. Not the chief priests, not the Roman guards, a slave. The one who was powerless to stop it. The one who didn't really have any choice about being there. The one who ended up being the real victim wasn't any of the people who the violence was really intended for. But in three of the Gospels, it was the nameless, faceless slave who remains a mystery in history, except for John. And John, the slave, gets a name, Malchus, the, the servant of the high priest Caiaphas. Malchus has a name. He has a position. He has an identity. As we think about the way we use violence as individuals, as a nation, as a world, we recognize this same pattern that those nameless, faceless people over there we might have some collateral damage, but, you know, we're doing good, right? We, we responded, and we reacted, and we, we went over there, and we, we used the necessary force to make us safe. And it's a story we tell ourselves time and time again. Are we any safer? Do we have any less fear? Do we have any less anger? Have, have we become more comfortable? Have we become a nation where all of a sudden, because we've used this force, we can feel like now, finally, we can be at rest? No, we're more scared than we've ever been before. Because that's the power of the sword, too. So how do we respond? Well, what does Jesus do? Jesus goes, and he offers himself up. And we see in God the real power that God has, not the power to burn us with lightning and thunder if we get a line, or to do any of the sinners in the hands of the angry God stuff that we all think we kind of deserve. 
but the real love and power of God comes through sacrifice, by giving away power, by laying down his life, so that the power of God will take it back up again. Because the truth of living in the world is the same truth that was true before 9-11 as what is true after 9-11 is we are not in control. We don't have any power. We can't make people love us. We can't bomb them into loving us. We can't force them to love us. But we sure aren't going to do it with the weapons that we use. So we use the one thing that God has given us, the example that God has given us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is love. A love that makes us vulnerable. A love that makes us scared. A love that makes us feel that fear and that anxiety in the pits of our stomach because we don't know how it's going to work out. It's also the one thing we haven't tried. Today as we go out and we go into this world that we really have no control over, how is it that we bring this love, the love of the God who gives all, the love of the God who goes out and has a preference for the people who are lost, who are broken, who are afraid, who are angry and hateful and vengeful, and, and calls us to love these people. How do we be the voice of God in their lives as we go out and live out this gospel call to shine light into the darkness? And how is it that we can have the courage to allow others to speak that into our lives as well? This is a hard call, but it's the one we've got. So today, as we leave this place, remember who you are. You are the beloved children of God in whom there is hope, because through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have been given a new life, a new birth, a new heritage that is not the old heritage of our hate and pain and shame, but is the heritage of love and hope and rebirth, and new opportunities. Amen. Amen. I invite the congregation to be seated and the children to come forward for the children's sermon. All right. Hey, that was a good drift you had on that. Well, good morning, y'all. How are you? Good. I can't see everybody over there. There you go. I can see you now. No, I'm over here. That's close enough. All right, so this morning, we hear Jesus talk about sheep that are lost. Have you ever lost anything? What, have you, what kinds of things have you lost? Can you remember anything that you've lost? What have you lost? Your makeup. You lost your makeup? What was that like to lose your makeup? How did that make you feel? Did it make you happy? No, it didn't make you happy to lose your makeup? Did it make you sad to lose your makeup? It made you a little sad to lose it. You know, I remember I had a favorite G.I. Joe action figure when I was a kid. And G.I. Joe was kind of our version of whatever toys you have, you know, the little, the little muscular figures that you have, right? And uh, 
I remember I had a favorite one. It was Snake Eyes, and he was cool because he was wearing all black, and he was wearing a mask, and so you couldn't see his face, so you could always imagine what he looked like, and he was gone. And at first, I thought maybe my brother had taken it, and so this will surprise you, but that, then I started an argument with my brother about it, and he didn't take it. And, and how do you think I felt when I realized that I had lost this Snake Eyes action figure that I liked so much? What do you, what do you think it made me feel like? Did it make me feel good? No, it didn't make me feel good. It made me feel sad. It made me feel a little bit mad. Because then later, after I had gotten in trouble for starting a fight with my brother, I found it and realized that I had, it was right where I left it and I had just forgotten. But you know what I did when I realized I lost it other than fight with my brother? I went looking everywhere for it. Because I, I didn't know where it was. Now when I finally found it, how do you think that felt? Happy. Happy, right? So that was a toy. And granted, I like toys. But, you know, if, have, you ever, have you ever not been able to find mom or dad? Have you ever been in a store and lost them? No? I remember when I was in a store one time, I got, I got separated from my mom, and it made me feel really scared. And then she found me. And you know what she did when she found me? She yelled at me. Why do you think she yelled at me? Because I wandered off. Why is it a big deal that I wandered off? Is it because uh, she just likes for me to be near her and she doesn't like for me to do anything else and wants me to be bored? No, it's not. It's because she loves me, right? And she's afraid that if I get separated from her, something bad could happen, right? And so imagine, as much as I like the toy and it made me sad to lose it, and as much as mom loves me and it made her sad and angry and upset and frustrated when she realized that I wasn't by her side, Imagine what it's like for God when God realizes that there's somebody who, who feels lost. God loves us so much more than we can ever understand. And so this is why when Jesus tells this story about, some, about the sheep that is lost, and the, the person leaves behind all the other sheep and goes looking for that lost sheep, and then is so happy that he throws the sheep over his shoulder and carries it back and says to everybody, Woohoo! I found this sheep that was lost. That's the way God loves us. When we're sad and we're lost and we're afraid, when we feel far away from God, God doesn't just stand there and wait for us to wander back. God goes looking for us. God calls us by name. And sometimes the way we hear God call us by name is mom yelling at us. Sometimes the way we hear God calling us by name is a friend asking us whether or not we're okay. You know, sometimes... We can be a voice that helps people to hear God calling them by name, by being kind to them, by being concerned with them when they look sad or upset or angry or frustrated. And God always comes looking for us whenever we're in those times in our lives when we're hurt or angry or afraid or all those feelings that come that we don't know what to do with. And so remember, when you're feeling alone, God is with you. And not only is God with you, but God is following you, God is looking for you, and God is calling you by name to come back. Let's have a prayer. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for always coming to look for us. Thank you for always being willing to find us when we are lost and to send people looking for us so that we can hear your voice through what they say. Help other people to hear your voice through us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all for coming up. It's good to see you.